If you enjoy the conversations in this podcast and want to help us continue to provide great content for the community, please consider supporting our work by becoming a friend of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas at the JCC. As a friend, you'll receive insider access to artists and VIP events, special passes to arts programs, and unique gifts from the JCC. To learn more, please visit jccmanhattan.org slash friends hyphen AI. Welcome to 76 West, a podcast of the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan, featuring talks from the JCC's Conversation Series, a marquee program of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas. This podcast is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. This week, we'll listen to a talk with New York Times reporters Robin Pogerbin and Kate Kelly, whose book, The Education of Brett Kavanaugh, investigates the formative years in confirmation of the Supreme Court justice. Asking the questions is Robin's sister, Abigail Pogerbin, host of the JCC's long-running series, What Everyone's Talking About. This talk was recorded in front of a live audience on November 3rd, 2019. Um, let's just start with the title of the book, The Education of Brett Kavanaugh. I'm sure you debated it. Um, who wants to start? Why did you pick it? Kate, take it away. Um, well, we let's go back to last October 6th, which was almost exactly a year ago. That's the day that uh, Brett Kavanaugh was sworn in, confirmed and sworn in as a justice. Um, we had this feeling of sort of unfinished business, and we think many others around the country did too. There were all these sort of gut-wrenching questions raised. Uh, there were follow-up questions about whether the Ford and Ramirez accounts, if true, should have been disqualifying. There was this FBI report that was kept in secret. Even the senators only got to look at it an hour at a time. And we thought, let's go back to high school and college, literally the educational years of this man, and try to unpack who he was at the time, what his influences were, and investigate further what happened with these alleged situations. So that was sort of part one. But the other part of it, which we found fascinating, was the education in where we are today as a culture and a society and a political unit as a country. Um, I think, unfortunately, the events of this were a new education for all of us, including Justice Kavanaugh, into what a kind of nadir we are at in terms of our public discourse, uh, the way social media has just become a place where you can say any hateful thing and it's okay or it's accepted, um, where people who come forward with important information or try to defend themselves from this are attacked brutally. Uh, we have a president who is a fighter, who's a verbal pugilist and sort of encourages that behavior um, and so on and on. So we felt like it worked on a couple of levels. And Robin, obviously this was as divisive and vitriolic a time a year ago, it's hard to believe, as we've ever lived through. So did you hesitate, as honest as you can be, about kind of going into the fire with this? I think we were, um, you know, even as two kind of rather experienced reporters, a little naive <laughs> about what we were in for. Um, I, I, I think we were revisiting a topic that was definitely a hot button issue for so many people. And one of the things that I was just aware of is sort of every dinner table, this was debated. And so it was, there was just a lot of fodder for discussion and debate. Um, but as to sort of walking into this toxic atmosphere ourselves, I don't think, even as we were working on it and writing it, 
that we realized what um, sort of how talk, you know, just how, you know, what it would set off once it came out. And how fresh the wounds are. I mean, how kind of the fresh the partisanship still is, how fresh the wounds are. What about just your process? How did you divide up? you know, who was interviewing who and, and what areas of, of kind of focus you were each taking? So we each um, were part of the original team at the New York Times that worked on this Kavanaugh coverage a year ago. We were brought in um, because of our personal associations with the story. Kate grew up in the D.C. area where Brett Kavanaugh grew up. Um, she was getting a few tips during this coverage that made her part of the team. And I was in his college class at Yale. And so initially I was just asked for the yearbook Um, Do you have it? Um, And then I was sort of able to reach classmates, and I was hearing things myself um, from classmates. You weren't just in his class. You you knew him. I I knew him. I lived in his dorm freshman year, but I didn't know him well. My college roommates were varsity athletes. Two of them are here tonight. Um, So they were in a kind of a jockey crowd socially that I then sort of segued into, even though I was much more of sort of an artsy, dorky kid. Um, oh, more on the academic side. Um, not, not that my roommates are not academic, but um, <laughs> and 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 Brett, as I always kind of refer to him because we knew him as Brett, was you know part of this group that was a group of athletes, and um, they were part of Deke, which was a frat then, and that was noteworthy because there weren't frats were not a, a you know a strong part of the culture at the time. So that's how we kind of came to this story um, personally. I'm forgetting what the original question no, was. No, so but it, but it's interesting to me that that the way that the time what any paper works is that when there's a story that's this hot and and in, in real time unfolding so quickly, and there was a pressured timeline, right? Because the allegations, which we'll get to, he had already been in. He'd already been. He'd already testified when the Ford when the Ford allegations surfaced. That's right. So, so you guys are kind of brought in on this larger team, and and is there a sense of you're basically calling people you knew, like people you knew, and who knows who knows who knows? Like, give us a sense of just how the reporting works without giving away, obviously. Well, I mean, I have um, you know one roommate in particular, Kathy Charlton, who kind of became obsessed with this story and and ended up being part of the story herself. Um, she was, she got a a text, she had a text exchange with one of the people that Deborah Ramirez puts in the room at the time, um, where Brett Kavanaugh allegedly exposed himself to her. So that was incredibly direct. And, um, you know, and Kathy was helpful in terms of, you know, thinking things through and other people that I could talk to. Um, there was also a guy named Chad Ludington who I knew, um, somewhat well, he's a close friend of Kathy's actually, who ultimately decided to put out a statement um, in real time during these hearings and say, that was not the bread I knew. Um, this was a guy who drank heavily. Um, Chad himself was on the basketball team, the varsity basketball team, so he had socialized with Brett. And so to that extent, um, and I also had you know the Yale alumni directory. I mean, I had access to these people and I remembered a lot of his cohort mm. um, and there was some overlap. And Kate, just in terms of just the milieu, because so much of this book that I think is the texture of the time. Yeah, so I uh, I grew up in D.C. about 10 years later than uh, Brett Kavanaugh. I went to National Cathedral School, which was one of the all-girls schools, kind of part of his broader network. He now famously went to Georgetown Prep, which was a Jesuit all-boys school in the area. Um, 
our brother school, which was St. Albans, kind of played sports against prep. And, you know, some of the girls in my school dated boys from there and we kind of knew each other. There were some sibling connections and things like that. But I came 10 years later and kind of wasn't contemporary with those same people. So for me, my background was a jumping off point. I knew the topography kind of literally and culturally. And I thought, I remember these unchaperoned parties. I remember this copious drinking. Um, And Yet at the same time, like I was not as Robin was, you know, calling my own classmates and trying to figure out what was going on because I had a little bit more distance. But that was that was actually a great vantage point from which to approach this because I had some knowledge, but not such direct knowledge that, you know, I felt funny about doing it. Um, And this was particularly divisive in D.C. I mean, it was really hard. Um, I think certainly the Kavanaugh family felt that, but also the Blasey family, Christine Blasey Ford's family really felt that. And, you know, I think there were friends of hers who were very supportive privately, but maybe had social interactions with the Kavanaugh's or members of their family or friends or belonged to the same club or uh, were appellate lawyers potentially doing business through their firm with the Supreme Court. So for all these reasons, uh, a lot of people felt they had to remain silent. In your introduction, um, you say, you write, in the course of our reporting, we saw how easy it was for observers to project onto the confirmation process whatever they wanted to believe. Even without a fuller sense of the facts, many had already made up their minds. And it felt to me like this book, in a way, was kind of, we're going to go backwards and unpack um, some of these facts. And, and as, they, as the review said, you slow it down for us. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we wanted to slow it down for ourselves, too. I mean, because we had been part of this fast and furious effort. Um, in fact, I was, you know, part of this team that was, you know, just um, frantically trying to confirm this Deborah Ramirez story. And famously now, the New York Times ultimately decided not to run with Can it. Can you just, for anyone who doesn't Deborah know. Ramirez was um, a classmate of, of, De- of Brett Kavanaugh's who... Um, sort of alleges she was at a freshman year dorm party where everybody was drinking. She was in part of a drinking um, game and she was targeted to drink quite a bit. Um, And at one point there was a fake penis in her face. Um, And then when there was a penis in her face again, she assumed it was also the fake one. She swatted it away. It turned out to be real. And it was the first time she'd touched a man's genitals, which she had not intended to do until she was married. She had been raised a kind of sort of conservative Catholic in a very sheltered upbringing. Um, she had some misgivings about being in Yale in the first place, and this just was traumatic for her. And, and then all the friends laughing at her was particularly impactful, as well as um, as sort of as seeing Brett laugh at her. Um, and so we were just uh, in, in a real effort to try to pin that down, because having done several of these Me Too stories at the Times, um, because it's a woman and a man in a room, typically, and, you, and it's hard to have sort of eyewitnesses, all you could get is sort of corroborating evidence around it contemporaneously. Did she tell someone? Did anyone hear about it? Did she tell someone shortly thereafter? And we just didn't have that. And so the New Yorker ran with that story ahead of us. And it ended up being used, um, kind of weaponized in the hearings itself, where even Brett Kavanaugh Before you get cited to that, that. Was that, is that a moment where you're, you're, you feel scooped, but you're comfortable with Yeah, I mean, I think would... there was a lot of debate on uh, among our editors about, you know, whether we go go with this. And we had kind of been neck and neck with him. We knew he was he was reporting this too at the New Yorker. And we just ultimately felt it was like a judgment call. We don't have this yet. 
We don't have it the way we feel like we need to have it. An important distinction is they had spoken to Deborah Ramirez herself, and she had decided to only speak to, to, one, in, to one organization, and the New Yorker got there first. But when you say it, it was weaponized, I remember this, that it was, it was used as an example of why there was no veracity. Yes. It was because you all chose not to run with exactly. it. Exactly. Even Brett Kavanaugh himself, in his testimony, said even the New York Times decided not to run with this story. Can you just talk, because you've raised it, and, and before I get to Kate and we go back in time a little bit with him, it's, it really did strike me in the time that you spent with her that something that for someone who maybe is raised differently and has a kind of a different perspective might have just kind of said, you know, get out of my face. While this was a pivotal moment in her, I mean, it shaped her. And in, in, in many ways, she hasn't shaken it. It did. Can you just talk, talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think that was sort of one of the important missions of this for us was to try to understand her experience and why it was such a big deal. Because someone looking from it at it from the outside can say, you know, on the spectrum of sexual misconduct, this is not sexual assault. It certainly arguably pales in comparison to what happened to Christine Blasey Ford. Um, why was this so formative? And... In spending time with her, I actually really got a sense and, and tried to convey in the book what it was about kind of cultural differences that can actually inform so much of your experience. And it was a sensitivity I don't think I had when I was at Yale, but it's an issue for our time that endures to this day. Um, and I think it's very different now where there's a heightened awareness of identity politics. But, you know, Deborah Ramirez, her father is Puerto Rican. She did not sort of have any sort of sense of pride around that at the time. She came to Yale and even her mother was saying, I'm not sure I want you to go there. I think basically this place is going to eat you alive. She was determined to prove herself that she could. She'd been academically distinguished, but she didn't have experience with boys. She says she hadn't had a drink before college. She joined the cheerleading team at Yale thinking that was cool and then quickly realized it's not cool. She, uh, she even had um, people tease her in ways that are actually hard to believe of sort of her, you know, knockoff Air Jordans, that they weren't real, the way she dressed, um, and the fact that, you know, well, how'd you get in here? Is it because you're Puerto Rican? Um, and even a line like when she came into a room of hide the knives. So there was really some, she was just coming from behind the eight ball in a way that I think is so important to understand. So then she comes to this party where she's the butt of the joke. And, and what she remembers most, which actually very much resonates with Blasey Ford's experience, is the laughter, is them laughing at her, how humiliated she was. And, and it's interesting, if you listen to her, um, the recording of our interview, she's, she cannot talk about it without crying. Mm. Um, and, and, and just that was, the, was the, this confirmed, she said, that I'm not sophisticated enough, smart enough, pretty enough to, to belong here. But in terms of corroborating something like this, like you're sitting with someone that seems believable, and I know that you, when you were working on the Richard Meyer story, that the stakes were very high, the Peter Martin story in terms of Me Too, that there's a rigor at the times, not just you, about what this, what you need in order to go with a story like this. There are, there's nobody who says they saw this. Right. So how do you... When people say you're going on some one person's memory, she could have been inebriated. It was 35 years she ago. She was inebriated. She makes no bones about so, that. Yeah. So then, for I mean, basically, what we found was there were seven people who had heard about this story, this having happened, to different degrees, and some of them were not told by Deborah Ramirez herself. So there are two guys who heard about it without hearing about it from her. 
shortly thereafter it happened. There is her mother, who was never reported before, who she told within a year or so, and she was crying so hard when she told her mother that her mother thought she'd been raped and asked if she wanted her to go to the Yale authorities for her. Deborah said no. There's a woman she told after she graduated who signed a sworn affidavit that was submitted to the FBI saying she told me about this. Those, you know, that's what you've got. And then you also have, which, you know, Kate can speak to in terms of Blasey Ford, is sort of a history of people saying this is a guileless, somewhat naive individual without a political agenda. You look at, you know, have they made major political contributions? Were they put up to this by the Democrats? You know, do they have a history of lying? Um, and and it, it is ultimately somewhat of a gut assessment, but you, you know, you get all the evidence you can. So Kate, get, help us sort of see Brett as a youngster um, in, in Washington, like what, sort of paint the picture of what you found in terms of how he grew up, him as a student, friends, family. You know, my impression of him uh, really was that he sort of worked hard and played hard, right? He was the only child, um, ultimately, of two lawyers. Um, his mom was a teacher in the in the D.C. system, and then sort of at a mid-career point went to law school, became a prosecutor, which became, became significant for him and also became an important uh, kind of motif in our book, um, and later a judge in Maryland. Uh, his dad worked for uh, this cosmetics industry trade association and also went to school and became a lawyer kind of mid-career. Um, Brett was an only child. He went to an all-boys school from a very early age, all-boys grade school called Modern Day, which was kind of a young, like recently founded Catholic school um, in Maryland outside of D.C. And the emphasis there was on academics, spirituality, and athletics. And he was, you know, by all accounts, an outstanding student. And in seventh grade, he got the Headmaster's Award, which is for like general excellence, like in performance, but also character, and means that your eighth and final year, eighth grade and final year there is paid for. So then he went on to Georgetown Prep, and he was a two varsity athlete, and he was typically like at or near the top of his class. And you know, many teachers and some students remember him as, you know. Uh, respectful, a good student, et cetera. But he had this other side to him, and it was sort of emblematic of the social scene at Georgetown Prep at that time more broadly. It was a hard-drinking, at times very tough-talking, even misogynistically-talking person. Um, and, you know, among other things, he and his friends were on the football team. They had this 100 keg club. They wanted to consume 100 kegs of beer their senior year, which was 1982 and three. They had all these parties where oftentimes there were no parents around. They would spend a week at the uh, shore in Maryland, a week called Beach Week that was like all about hookups and kind of binge drinking and vomiting and, you know, just generally getting crazy. Um, I just want to talk about the vomit for a minute. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because it just, there's so much of it that sort of weaves through. But you re remember that letter, the letter where he kind of warns, is it the... the yeah, the Beach Week letter. Yeah, so tell so us this, about that. So this letter was composed in uh, early in 1983 to kind of set up Beach Week, which was going to be in June. And we sort of highlighted actually in the very beginning of the book, uh, it became something that we reported on in the Times a year ago, and then was a subject of discussion at the Georgetown Prep 35th um, alumni reunion, which happened a few weeks after Kavanaugh was sworn in. So uh, the letter just said kind of on the, on the one hand, it's persnickety. And on the other hand, sort of salacious. It's like, hey, guys, I'm organizing the house. One of you guys needs to go to thus and such Realty Corporation and this give them- This is Brett's letter. 
Right. Brett wrote it. $398 to finish like paying for our condo. And so it's kind of very organized. But then it's like, we should warn the neighbors. We are prolific pukers among us. And then, you know, can we all agree that girls are welcome if they have open dot, 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 like ellipsis, you know, but no other guys can stay. So it's just like this combination of kind of elements that gives you a little bit of a picture. And I felt reading just about in your sections about his childhood, just really kind of whiplash because right. on one level he, I mean, and maybe that's just true of a lot of people. A lot of kids is that, you know, you're, as you said, they're, they're working hard and they're playing hard. How did you, I guess, investigate th this without putting too much weight on child, I mean, a teenager's activities because you know about Blasey Ford, you know, we, because of hindsight, essentially. Well, part of my uh, job, it felt like, was to kind of stitch together these two sides of his personality because, after all, it is the same person. So I would have, you know, alumni from that time, and I talked to quite a few of them, say, you know, he was a great guy. He treated me well. He did well in school. And then another side saying, he bullied me. He called me a master debater because I was on the forensics team and I was humiliated. Um, you know, he was not necessarily an instigator but a participant in bullying of other boys. And he sang this misogynistic song about Renata Schroeder, who was this friend of theirs, and put it in his ear, put elements, references to it in his yearbook. And so when I finally said to people, all right, well, put this all together for me. Like, how, how, do, how do you understand him as a whole? And they said, well, look, you know, he, he was generally a bright and, and dedicated student. But, you know, when he drank or he was showing off for his friends, like this other side came out. And it seems that the drinking and it, it became more important because he denied he denied the extent of it. That so talk a little bit about I don't want to run too far ahead to the hearings, but why it almost became in retrospect more important his behavior as a high schooler and as a college student and more and more people coming forward who said I remember him coming back you know after parties and not being able to stand up. Um, all of these, you know, again, more more vomit in college, all over the place. I mean, you you have a whole section. There's a section about he was painting himself as other than he was, which yes. in, in some ways one could say, again, just devil's advocate. Of course, why would he admit to that? But why did that become important in terms of just him as a as a justice and the worthiness of the Supreme Court? Because you know, as one of his classmates said on television, is if you're going to lie about the little things, what about the big things? And, and that really became this theme, which is, you know, if he's dissembling, even about his drinking behavior, how can we trust this guy on the highest court in the land? On the other hand, you know, technically, he said I had, sometimes I had too many beers. So he conceded that. That seems to be the only admission we can really find. Um, he just didn't, you know, ex admit to the extent of it. Um, and so it's really kind of then up to the people to judge, you know, whether or not they feel like that is disqualifying. So, Raman, if you could just take us a little bit to just when he's first named, because the, the you have really interesting background, um, both of you, about how there was real, he was actually not like a top choice candidate for conservatives in the beginning. Well, he was for some. He was the top choice for Don McGahn, who was the White House counsel at the time. And he was Don's man. They they knew each other from the Bush White House. They knew each other from the Washington establishment. Someone called Don McGahn the Sherpa, right, for, for yes. Brett Kavanaugh. He, he, it was his mission to get Brett Kavanaugh up to the top of the mountain, and he did. 
did. And this was right before he was going to leave, right? He knew, uh, McGahn knew he was going to leave. He was clashing with Trump already, but Trump had kind of delegated to Don McGahn his, his, ju- his, just, his judge selection because um, he kind of, this is sort of one rare example where Trump sort of admitted what he didn't know, which is sort of how to pick judges. And so he kind of contracted that out to the Federalist Society, which is kind of this conservative um, think tank type operation that really has been developing conservative judges and really stacking the court with them to as, to as great a degree as possible. They gave Trump a list of 25 people they'd be happy with. Kavanaugh wasn't even initially on that list. Hmm. And the reason is, um, as we talk about in our book, um, this guy, Mike Davis, sort of embodies this view. He was Grassley's. He was the head of the nominations. He was the chief counsel for the nominations committee on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And he just felt that that Kavanaugh wasn't conservative enough, actually. They wanted someone who was going to definitely cement the right wing tilt on the court, um, their 5-4 majority. They had not been happy, obviously, with Kennedy as a swing vote. They didn't want another swing vote. And they didn't want a Justice Roberts type of person. They wanted a, a Scalia, a Gorsuch. Um, someone that they were sure of was in the conservative mold. There's this great line that, that Davis has where he describes Kavanaugh as too bushy, swampy, and chiefy. And uh, what he means by that is too much a creature of the swamp because he's from D.C. and Trump doesn't like you know, the D.C. establishment and considers himself a maverick on the outs- from the outside. Too uh, bushy because he'd worked in two George W. administrations and was very close to George Bush, who, you know, was at his wedding and um, kind of when he was sworn in for the D.C. Circuit, um, he was there for that and and nominated him for that. And um, what's the third? Well, and he oh, Chiefy is too much like Justice Roberts. And he he was he knew Gorsuch, right? I mean, he they They both went to Georgetown Prep. I, I think it's worth noting, though, there are some contrasts too between Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. I mean, there were issues with that confirmation, but that, in retrospect, looked to Republicans like a cakewalk compared to Kavanaugh. Um, he was on the Tenth Circuit in Colorado. Um, one of the biggest dings against him was his ruling in a case where a, a trucker uh, was pulled over in freezing weather and didn't follow company instructions um, as it pertained to like getting help on the road and like abandon his vehicle so he could go warm up somewhere. And Gorsuch's ruling essentially argued that he did the wrong thing; the employee did. Um, but you know. In terms of his personal life and his jurisprudence, he was farther to the right and, you know, just far less controversial. Um, So, you know, although they hailed from the same background, they ended up having very different, you know, issues in the process. And and again, before we get to Ford, the, the fact that Chuck Schumer came out against him right away was something that also seemed to echo all through this, which is the partisanship was evident. I mean, uh, I think it was hard to miss that there was opposition before it seemed like even Kavanaugh was known. So can you just talk about the context? I mean, that has been sort of stunning to us, and it's borne out through the Kavanaugh process. It's been borne out through our book even, that, you know, even before our book was published, we had six um, Democratic candidates calling for Kavanaugh's impeachment based on an excerpt in the New York Times. And on the other hand, you had people sort of saying that we were- um, We had Senator Grassley making a floor speech saying we didn't do basic reporting. Right. And I got a call from one of our colleagues saying, what's your comment on that? There were people on the left who just assumed Kavanaugh was just this right-wing ideologue and a sexual predator and an entitled, privileged white boy. Um, And then there were people who said, this is a guy who's had his life ruined for something he did when he was 17 and 18 and doesn't deserve it. So let's get to Blasey Ford. 
tell us kind of, I mean, we, we lived through it, but in terms of the timeline, she sees his name and she recognizes it and this all goes into motion. Yeah, I mean, to me, this was one of the most fascinating things to to sort of unpack her process of, you know, both reckoning with her own memory and then deciding to come forward and figuring out how. Um, and in, in many ways, it, it it's sort of a failure of the process. Um, so she uh, remembers this alleged incident with, with Kavanaugh where he according to her, attempted to rape her um, while his friend Mark Judge watched at a kind of unchaperoned teenage gathering. But she doesn't say attempted to rape her. She says, I thought he was going to rape me. That was part of her testimony. It, it didn't It didn't get that far. Um, and, you know, he was apparently attempting to take her I just want to be careful about that word because I, I don't remember her using it. Right, right. Um, she did say it, an attempt. So um, she has this recollection and she has remembered it all these years, but really not talked about it much at all. She has disclosed to her husband that something happened along these lines, but without any details. She's talked in therapy about it a little bit. And starting um, in 2016, she starts to confide in a few people a little bit more detail about this. Some friends. Some friends, that's right. And then uh, in 2018, she sees that Kavanaugh is on the short list to succeed Justice Kennedy. And um, she starts talking to friends in California where she's on the beach. She's, side note, a passionate surfer. Um, this is actually like her favorite thing to do other than teach and hang out with family. So she's on the beach. Her kids are in a junior lifeguard camp in Santa Cruz. And she's talking to friends about this information and how to bring it forward to the decision makers. And in her mind at this point, the decision makers are really President Trump. I don't know how familiar she even is at this point with the Senate judiciary process. Um, she feels like it's her duty to share this with the proper authorities in case they care. That's how she framed it to me when I interviewed her. Um, so she talks to her local congresswoman or tries to. She sends an anonymous tip to the Washington Post. Neither party follows up with her right away. And essentially, um, it's the end of July, and Kavanaugh has been the nominee for multiple weeks before she actually is able to put pen to paper and share this information with Senator Feinstein. So um, uh, Ford calls Eshoo's office. This is her local representative, leaves a message. There's a bit of back and forth. Ultimately, she sits down with Congresswoman Eshoo, tells her story. Eshoo says, okay, let me think about how best to convey this because as a Congresswoman, I'm not actually part of this process. It's really the Senate and specifically the Judiciary Committee. So a bit of time goes by, like a week or 10 days, and ultimately the decision is you should write a letter and address it to Dianne Feinstein, who is the minority leader on the Senate Judiciary Committee. So Ford does that. She shares this letter, but in three places she says, please keep this confidential. I don't want to risk losing my privacy or having a security issue or having my family get drawn into it. Seventy Six West is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. In 1934, Lewis and Lillian Zabar opened a shop along Broadway at 80th Street on New York's Upper West Side. Lewis was a stickler for quality, roasting his own coffee and personally visiting smokehouses to sample and inspect fish, rejecting far more than he accepted. Today, Lewis's principles and practices continue to guide Zabar's. Respect the customer. Never, ever stint on quality. Offer fair value. And last but not least, keep searching for the new and wonderful. Be sure to visit Zabar's store on 80th and Broadway 
or visit zabars.com for mouthwatering specialties like bagels, babka, rugelach, smoked fish, and of course, world-famous caviar. Zabars ships to all 48 contiguous United States plus Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico, so there's no reason your friends can't enjoy the fresh, homemade taste of Zabars any day of the week. Now that was the first time she ever put wrote this down, this experience. I think so. I think at that point she had shared it verbally, you know, with close friends and her husband. Um, but yes, I don't, to my knowledge, she had not actually written it out until then. Um, but describe about how she thought maybe she could first call Brett and not do this. Oh, yeah. This was a pretty interesting thing. So early on when she's kind of brainstorming what to do with this information, she considers the idea of calling him or even messaging him like... Um, I have this memory and here's what it is. And then giving him this message of let's not do this. And meaning don't, don't, don't go put yourself forward. Well, so it wasn't clear to me what her expectations were when she, like when she imagined doing this. And, and I think she kind of quickly abandoned that idea, but, um, it wasn't clear to me whether it was can we talk this out privately? And uh, would he remember it? Would he not? Would he apologize? You know, she had no idea. But there was certainly kind of a, an implication there that like, let's not do this publicly because, you know, if you go ahead, I might have to bring this up publicly and it might derail your confirmation. So that was a really interesting moment. And, and it said something a little bit about, I mean, there's something actually very resonant about having a personal conversation like that and trying to address a past hurt and and hopefully, you know, come to terms with something. I just asked before you continue, what what is she like to be with? Um, you know, the first time I met her, uh, I was not taking notes or anything. It was just kind of a get to know you. And, and she's really, um, you know, very charming, very bright, kind of just a family person, like a mom that I could meet at any of my kids' sports or events. Um, and, and very sort of unaffected, you know, she wears like sweats and a baseball cap and sunglasses. And, um, you know, she was just like delightful and funny and much more casual and much funnier clearly than she was when we all kind of encountered her on national television. That was a very sober event. Um, but, uh, you know, then when I interviewed her, she was much more reserved, um, and very guarded. And this is clearly extremely painful for her to talk about. And, um, it's hard for her to like stay on the subject for very long. Um, so the conversation would kind of meander a little bit and, um, you know, it was hard. I mean, I, I, it, yeah, it's difficult. So Feinstein talks to her and then Feinstein has a phone conversation with her and ultimately then Feinstein, as we all know, kind of sits on the letter because she feels like it's marked confidential. I don't feel like the FBI can do anything at all with this. Uh, if, if this writer needs to remain confidential. Um, she has her staff look into the idea of having an outside counsel investigate it, but that requires permissions from other committees and, and potentially budget money to be unleashed. Un, uh, leashed. And uh, she's just not comfortable doing that. She fears leaks. So she does nothing until mid-September. And at this point, uh, Dr. Ford's name has leaked out and... Um, reporters are getting wind of the situation and some people have guessed that maybe it is her. Senator Kamala Harris 
knows that there is a letter out there. Uh, the Intercept on September 12th writes sort of a vague story, but nonetheless, they have the crux of it, that there is this letter about an allegation like this. And by September 16th, Dr. Ford feels like her hand is forced and she tells her whole story to the Washington Post and then all hell breaks loose. And so uh, now Justice Kavanaugh denies it. That's right. And essentially, I mean, where does everyone start just preparing for to hear her? I mean, it, was there was there any kind of hesitation about her being heard at all on the Senate side? I know there was on her side. She was reluctant. But w as soon as these were out there, was there discussion about whether or not? I mean, I think that this is sort of the difference between Anita Hill and now, although Anita Hill testified also. But I think in the Me Too era, it was clear that she had to be heard from or this would look like, you know, they were, the, the Republicans were sort of railroading this process. Um, and so then it became a, a very kind of tortured negotiation on the terms because they wanted to keep things, you know, on a, a pace. They were very much interested in seeing Kavanaugh confirmed before the, before the start of the new term on the court and also before the midterm elections. So they did not want to slow things down. And we had uh, Blasey Ford's folks were just like, just wait a minute, this is a big deal for her to testify. So negotiating the terms took a while. Um, if you guys remember that there was, you know, that she was supposed to do Monday and ultimately it was Thursday. And, and then they agreed they would do it in a smaller hearing room so it wouldn't be as intimidating, that she could have her lawyers flank her on either side, that Kavanaugh would not be in the room. Why, why, why is that unusual to have lawyers on either side? I guess typically you're just sitting there by yourself. So there were certain conditions that, that were met. Kavanaugh's out there by himself. Mm, yeah. So let's get to the hearings. Obviously, it's like unlike any kind of television we've ever seen. Um, what's happening in the background in terms of their preparation? Do you want to start with Ford? Yeah, I mean, Ford um, took this plane ride to uh, D.C. to testify uh, without really wrapping her head around the fact that she was going to testify publicly, even though she's flying on a Tuesday and the Sunday prior, Senator Grassley, who's running the Judiciary Committee, has said in a press release she's going to testify publicly. So the rest of us are expecting that. But she's telling her friends, well, you know, I may just meet with senators individually or privately. And um, is that just denial or she didn't really kind of. So I really asked about this. Um, you know, how, how should I understand this? Had she, was it denial or was the decision not really made, even though there was this public expectation? Um, and it sounds like a couple of things were going on. Number one, her lawyers and advisors were sort of trying to negotiate something. And she was very distracted by death threats, security concerns about her family. They were moving around. She was just being completely barraged. Her email was hacked. So she kind of had her head in another place, but also she was reluctant to do it. And they had sort of answered for her. Um, Who's they? Well, her lawyers, Debbie Katz and Lisa Banks, her um, communications advisor, Ricky Seidman was very involved. And the night before the testimony, the Wednesday night, Ricky Seidman, her communications person, who, by the way, was one of the first investigators to talk to Anita Hill. Um, she worked in the Senate back in the early 90s and has been involved with multiple uh, Supreme Court confirmations. Pulls her aside and says, look, Christine, I know you don't want a circus. I know you're very concerned about this. We've tried to make to, to get whatever concessions we can in terms of the lawyers sitting with you in all these smaller hearing room, viewer cameras, all these things to make you feel comfortable, but you have to do this publicly. And the reason you have to do it is that if you do it in a closed session, the only people who will hear you are the 21 senators on this committee 
And the other, the, you know, the balance of the Senate who are going to be voting on Judge Kavanaugh up or down will not have heard you. They'll only be hearing sort of secondhand what was said. So you either tell just these 21 people or the whole world, and we think you need to tell the whole world. And she kind of reluctantly agreed. And on the Senate side, I mean, basically one thing they did do was they realized sort of the error of their ways with Anita Hill, and they realized that a panel of all white Republican men, um, on, uh, male senators, was going to be bad optics. And so they hired a female prosecutor, who Rachel Mitchell, who they then quickly jettisoned um, into the hearings, but, but their intentions were to sort of introduce a female voice. And when you say jettisoned, I mean, we saw them sort of get exasperated. Like she was supposed to ask the questions. But and she, she did started ask asking the questions. And then when, you know, once you had Lindsey Graham's tirade, you know, they were just, you know, they were not interested in her questions. They were interested in making speeches towards the end. In, in terms of just what backing up her story, which is, again, it is a he said, she said. There are no witnesses. And can you talk a little bit about Leland Kaiser? Because her name came up in the hearing and, and since then... Um, I think she has sort of changed her her uh, testimony or her uh, public statements. Right. Um, so uh, with Dr. Ford, it was difficult. I mean, she never confided in anyone at the time. She did not write this in a journal, in a letter. There just is no contemporaneous evidence. There's her memory. Um, so we had to kind of make an assessment. You know, we tried to verify everything that we had learned about her as a as a young woman um, at that time, who her friends were, how she was connected to Kavanaugh's group of friends. She dated one of his good friends. Her friend, Leland Kaiser, who I'll get to in a second, dated Mark Judge, Kavanaugh's friend. Um, we know that there were these um, sort of alcohol-fueled, unchaperoned parties, so the, the setting seemed plausible. Overlap um, with the parents. Right, right. And and um, what was the overlap with the parents? Well, the, both fathers belonged to the same country oh. club. Okay. Though it's not clear it was at that time in the early 80s, but it did happen later. So there, there clearly was some social overlap. And also Dr. Ford has, as far as we know, a history of integrity and honesty. And many people attest to that, even her ex-boyfriend, whose testimony about her not knowing about her fear of flying and other things about her uh, was used against her by Republicans. When I interviewed him and in his affidavit, he said, look, she's an honest person. I've never never known her to tell a lie. So we felt that she had credibility. There was also the polygraph. That's right. She passed a polygraph test that was taken last August uh, dealing with her Kavanaugh memories. So we felt she had integrity. We felt there were a lot of elements of her story that rang true. And we had also talked to sex crimes experts and memory experts about, <clears throat> excuse me, the nature of memory in situations like this. And we were told that the spotty memory, the sort of clear memory of the alleged assault and also kind of escaping from that, but the kind of hazy memory about many other things is, is consistent. So that for those reasons, we felt that Dr. Ford was credible. Enter Leland Kaiser. Leland Kaiser was her friend from high school. Um, both women acknowledge that. Um, they spent a lot of time together, and both women guess, although, although Dr. Ford doesn't remember this specifically and Kaiser doesn't remember this incident at all, uh, that Leland probably drove Dr. Ford home because... Christine at the time didn't have a license. So Kaiser said last year she didn't remember this, but but she believed her friend. Um, she's consistently said she doesn't remember it. But what happened after those statements, which were ta like taken in like September 22nd or 23rd of last year, in the week or 10 days that followed, 
Leland um, rested up, looked at old photographs, was following the news, looked at maps. And what do you mean rested up? Well, she's got a number of health conditions. She's had a bunch of surgeries. She used to- remember, I remember that Blasey Ford talked about her- Her health issues. Yeah. Yeah. It seemed like she was sort of protecting her. I, I thought that even Kavanaugh did as well, as if there was something they couldn't talk about. Well, she's had, a, she's had a history of medical issues. She used to run the women's golf program at Georgetown University and had to retire from that in the mid-aughts because of a series of health issues. And she's had some orthopedic and neurological issues, I believe, and, and like numerous surgeries and things like that. And when I was dealing with her, she would say to me on occasion, like, I'm sick in bed, I can't talk, I'm, I'm having various issues. She also has a history of substance abuse, which she has acknowledged. Um, and, you know, that is something that can impair memory. Um, but in any case, so she was not feeling well. She was very stressed out about being drawn into this drama, as all the key players were. So she had not slept a lot. She had gone to visit people in Michigan to get away from D.C. because reporters were hounding her. Anyway, she finally rests up, um, and she decides she doesn't believe Dr. Ford. And um, she doesn't think that Brett Kavanaugh's face is at all familiar, and she doesn't remember a party like that. And she doesn't understand why Christine would not have confided in her at the time. As an aside, she and Christine had had a conversation right after Christine went public saying, did you ever cry out to me at the time? And Christine said, no, I didn't tell anyone. And Leland said, oh, gosh, OK, I'm glad. I'm glad it's not the case that you told me and I wasn't there for you. But anyway, as she thinks through it, she starts to feel very dubious. And she requests a second interview with the FBI. She's already given testimony once, but she requests a second not, not public testimony, private. She requests a second interview where she tells the FBI she's not confident in the account for all of these reasons. And we kind of walk through all of it in our book. Um, some of the reasons she doubts this are totally reasonable. Um, but in the end, when we stack it against what we know about Dr. Ford and the nature of memory and the things that were verifiable in terms of the context, uh, we still find Dr. Ford credible. Mark Judge, you reached out to him. You tracked him down because I know he was hard to find. He was hard to find. Uh, it's interesting because he's a guy that's written and taken, you know, made films and been pretty open. He's written two books that deal. Tell people who he is in case they don't remember. Well, so he's the guy who allegedly was in the room uh, with Kavanaugh when Blasey Ford was assaulted. And um, also the guy that allegedly like jumped on top of both of them. Uh, and and essentially knocked them off the bed where they were laying and allowed Christine to escape. Um, so Judge has written a couple of books that deal with his uh, experience at Georgetown Prep. He's been pretty open about his own um, alcoholism and recovery and high school memories and all these things. But he was very silent after this. Uh, he was interviewed by the FBI but he consistently just said he didn't remember this incident. And I looked all over for him. He was like staying with friends. Then he was supposedly staying with his sister. And I was like driving all over the greater Washington area looking for him. And I finally got to where he was staying one night. And uh, although I was turned away by, I think, a family member at the door, I left a card and he called me. And we had sort of a brief conversation, mostly him telling me to like buzz off. Um, but, you know, he, he was, again, I, I just don't remember this. I really don't have anything to add. So, you know, part of, I think, what is was interesting is that the world seemed to believe her after her testimony. I won't speak for everyone, but I remember listening to the commentary on, on every, from every kind of political bent, um, 
Fox News' Chris Wallace called her testimony a disaster for the Republicans. Even Trump was known to have spoken approvingly of it the next day. Um, someone said, Ford seems kind. She doesn't strike me as partisan. Um, and the senators were flooded with messages. So just can we can you just at least, Robin, just talk about what was happening in the how riveting it was and the reaction in the sort of Twitter sphere at the t Twitter sphere, if that's the word. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was one of those things where people, you know, stopped whatever they wherever whatever they were doing to watch um, kind of all over the country. And it resonated on so many levels. Um, you know, victims felt that, you know, she was speaking for them. And this was sort of the, the pinnacle of bravery. Um, but also, I think she kind of raised the consciousness of, of many senators who were listening and, and others in government, where it just, this seemed like an incontrovertible story when she told it. I mean, I remember looking at my, at Twitter at the time and people just saying, you know, this guy is toast. Like they just, there seemed to be no way to survive that testimony. And that's kind of what made the turnaround so remarkably dramatic because it just, it felt like um, sort of the hearts were on her side. And can you talk about what McGann's advice was after her testimony? Yes, so well, um, basically, you know, Kavanaugh apparently did not watch the testimony. He was home and then he comes to testify and sort of he's waiting in, in one of the senator's offices. And McGahn, um, basically, you know, we have our colleague Carl Hulse has a book out right now where he kind of looks at the whole history of, of, of judicial confirmations and talks about how McGahn said to him, you know, you've got to reboot the room um, and basically show how you feel. And then we have in our book that Mike Davis said to Kavanaugh as he passed him, you know, you got to come out swinging. And, you know, interestingly, that is the same playbook that um, Clarence Thomas used with his um, lynching, high-tech high lynching line. And it is also um, the Trump playbook, frankly, of, you know, we know that Trump was not happy with the Fox News interview that Kavanaugh had given when he sat next to his wife and in a very muted way. Um, kind of defended himself and asked for a fair process. Um, so this was like a few days before the September 27th hearing, and it, just tell tell people how that was described by some Republican insiders. Yeah, some Republicans were saying, like, you know, first of all, it looked like a hostage situation. Th this is the Fox News interview. Fox News interview, like the the, the, the blinds were drawn. It was like these, like, 1-800 flowers behind him. Um <laughs> You know, the guy, all he just, he said 11 times, I'm just looking for a fair process. And, and one of these Republicans said to us, why don't you just say I'm not a gang rapist, dude? You know, like they wanted him to have more self-righteous indignation. Um, and that message was conveyed to him that even Trump um, sort of uh, waffled at that point. Like, should we stick with this guy? And McConnell, um, the Senate Majority Leader, was just like, this is, um, we're sticking with him. And after Blasey Ford testified, Trump called McConnell and Trump and McConnell said, this is just halftime. So um, they had a clear sense that they could sort of turn things around and they did. And, and you know, as much as people debate um, Kavanaugh's temperament in, in his delivery and how he treated senators, you know, ultimately it worked. Those are the two sides we've really heard where, I mean, there are people who have said to us that was more disqualifying to them than the, act, the allegations themselves. Um, Including John Paul Stevens. John Paul Stevens, which was very dramatic, had, had supported Kavanaugh, the former, one of the former justices, and said, actually, I can't anymore, not just because of the temperament, but because of the partisanship that he felt um, Kavanaugh showed by citing the Clinton conspiracy as a <coughs> potential um, sort of reason behind all of this. 
And, you know, there was just this feeling like, how can this guy ever be impartial where now he seems to have it out for the Democrats and he's clearly so embittered and he's treating someone like Senator Klobuchar with, uh, with such a lack of respect. Um, on the other hand, there are those who say, imagine if you were falsely accused and you're fighting for your name and your family and your personal and professional reputation. Um, and we have, you know, one former female clerk say, you know, I'd never seen this side of him before. So that this was distinctly out of character for, you know, what by all accounts in our reporting shows was a generally very mild-mannered, well-behaved person. Well, and you also go out of your way to talk about how supportive he was uh, to women clerks and mentees, that he was really a, a champion throughout his entire career. Um, for women's advancement, yeah. and he's the only justice now to have all for female clerks. Um, that that seems significant in some in some way in weighing all. He of has it. he has meaningfully promoted women on the bench in a way that seems less to not just token. He's done it throughout his career. He not only hires them as clerks, but mentors them far into their careers, and they speak of him, you know, with absolutely adoring terms as also someone they feel comfortable being out with, that he's not at all like a lechy person, and that they, you know, he's invited them, their families over, and they have a great relationship with him and affection for him. They, they've also talked about the fact that he always insists on having no politics be part of the decision-making, which was striking. We had one former clerk who came to him with a toddler and, you know, that was an unorthodox time in life to become a clerk. And he said, you know, let's figure out how to do this. I haven't done it before. You haven't either. You know, I want this to work for both of us, which seemed very progressive. On the other hand, there are those who cynically say maybe he was anticipating these allegations and this was sort of an antidote to that. And he was kind of trying to preempt them by being good on women. Um, so. And I know you, you don't tell us how to make up our minds, but in the whiplash that I experienced reading it, it does, it is significant to me that there is nothing in the 35 years since, as egregious as these things, these alleged events are, if they are true, that there is nothing that you found in all of these years since. Well, um, we felt like ultimately this was someone who seems to have evolved, you know, and either realized the mistakes of his youth, if you if you believe that he remembers this stuff and knows that it happened and made a conscious attempt to reform, or um, if he doesn't remember them or, or you know, that they're not accurate, he just sort of evolved into a different and, and really decent professional person. I mean, it has to be said about Kavanaugh, he has been a public servant his entire career. His sum total in, in private um, legal practice is like three years. I mean, he, he worked as a partner at Kirkland and Ellis in between public jobs, but he clearly has a high esteem for government service. Um, he is, as Robin said, a real mentor to all kind of young lawyers that come th across his path, but particularly women. Um, his passion for um, coaching um, young women's sports seems very real. Um, a, a friend of mine's uh, niece is, has been on his team and, and adores him. Um, so it just seems like he, he grew into a very different and accomplished and hardworking person. So the thing is, like, it... it People are complex, you know? I mean, I loved that Washington Post review you you mentioned, or maybe it was the Times, but the Post review said something to the effect of, there are no heroes or villains here, there are, there are only human beings. And that was very much our experience, you know? And, and we've talked a lot about the women and their stories and why we find them credible. At the same time, though, in order to try to do this right, we had to put ourselves in, in Brett Kavanaugh's shoes. 
and think about, you know, our spouses or our sons and, and how would we feel if, you know, they were accused of something that they don't believe to be true or don't remember, um, it would be outrageous. It would be terrifying, you know, um, and especially if they had this long track record of, of accomplishment. Um, you know, there's also kind of an interesting argument that some might make that if you think about the juvenile justice system in our country, um, misdeeds from before the age of 18 are typically like kept confidential or expunged later. And the whole philosophy is that if you continue on in life um, and you don't repeat those mistakes and you become a decent person, they shouldn't haunt you forever. And th there's an element of that, that that's an interesting you know, point of discussion that here. The brain hasn't fully evolved yet, so, mm. so it shouldn't count them. And there are people who have said to us that, you know, I think many people feel if if Kavanaugh had owned some of that sort of human frailty, this might have had a sort of a different feeling in our country about all this, where if he'd said, I did some things I regret or I don't remember, I'm not or proud of. Or if I did. Or if I did. And, and I'm sorry if I hurt some people along the way. Um, there, you know, he there was no middle ground here. And, and that was. Well, I do want to just touch on the show of your rollout um, and obviously you're not laughing <laughs> but that <laughs> there, there was just so many people were calling me and saying kind of how did this happen that you've written this book that talks about embracing the messy middle and suddenly you're having to deflect accusations of being entirely partisan of wanting to essentially just dig up dirt um, so just if you can explain very condensed you, the, the excerpt runs in the Times. People were surprised that it was in the editorial or the opinion section. But more importantly, this line was missing from the book. So it's in the book and not in the excerpt. Right. So, I mean, basically, we, we debated what was the best place to have an excerpt. We wanted to have an excerpt. There was no guarantee we'd have an excerpt. Um, we thought, you know, that in the Sunday Review is not just an opinion section. It's also a place for news analysis, and it's sometimes where books are ex excerpted. And the editor was interested in having us focus on the Ramirez um, chapters because that was sort of new reporting. Um, she had been somewhat neglected. She never testified publicly. And frankly, the whole cultural sort of milieu around her that informed that experience was interesting. And it was something that's timeless because people are dealing with those issues even today. So we decided to do those. In there, we also mentioned this new allegation we found, which is sort of the one other um, example of Kavanaugh um, having some sexual misconduct, which was he exposed himself to another freshman, uh, another uh, classmate, this freshman alleged. year, alleged, um, at a freshman dorm party where everybody was very drunk. And in this case, we have an eyewitness, Max Steyer, we were reporting his name for the first time, who was a classmate who runs a um, bipartisan um, good government organization in DC and is highly respected on both sides of the aisle. He was in Michael Lewis's podcast. And, and he was in Michael Lewis's book, The Fifth oh, Risk. Right. Um, and he says he saw Kavanaugh expose himself to this other woman. We named the woman in the book. Um, we named her in the excerpt. We actually pulled the same line from the book and put it in the excerpt. And we felt that this example was germane because it echoed Ramirez's experience and because Max Steyer had gone to the FBI and the Senate and, and members of the Senate and tried to convey this information when it might have been relevant to Kavanaugh's evaluation. And it was never pursued. Um, so we had that line in saying that, that he saw this, that um, the friends of the, the alleged victim say she doesn't remember it. Our editor felt we shouldn't necessarily name her. The Times has a tradition of not naming victims and that it might be gratuitous and send press to her door. We actually, you know, thought 
um, people are going to figure out who she is anyway. But he ultimately took the whole line out, and that line included the caveat about her friends. And people have seized on that, which I think to some extent we probably should have anticipated and people would have found other things. And this was an, maybe an inevitability in terms of how um, we kind of hit the third rail with this book. Um, but that's what happened. Well, it seems that it's it's kind of faded, and it should because this book is much larger than that and much more important than that. So you end with a Virgil quote, and I'm going to end with it. Someday it will be helpful to have recalled even these events. I think it's very helpful that you have. Thank you. Thank you. That was Robin Pogerbin and Kate Kelly talking to Abigail Pogerbin about their book, The Education of Brett Kavanaugh. Our podcasts are produced by Megan Whitman and me, Eric Winnick. Our editor is Matt Temkin. Our music was written and performed by Peril Wolf. The voice of Zabars is Leah Rosensweet. Please give us a rating and review on iTunes, and if you can, share this episode with your friends. If you're just joining us, welcome, and be sure to subscribe for future episodes. Welcome.